0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch with Jen. This week, it is great to welcome back Peter Avellino, a very talented and thoughtful writer and film Twitter royalty. Peter Avellino's long form essays on the movies that fascinate and frustrate him in equal measure have long made his blog, Mr. Peel's Sardine Liquor, a must read for cinephiles. Peter, it is wonderful to see you again, my friend. How are you doing, and how's spring been treating you?
1: Hi Jen, it's great to see you. Um, Things have been going well. I've been busy with lots of things, and it's just been a it's just been a crazy year so far. And um, one thing I will mention is that as crazy as things are, it's it has been great in LA at the very least to have places like the New Beverly and the Cinematheque to go to because their programming has been really fantastic lately. And just the other night, to weirdly to tie into the last time we talked, um,
2: the Cinematheque.
1: You, yes exactly in the uh i just saw a 35 millimeter print of the heartbreak kid
2: at oh, the West wow.
1: for a print that apparently they flew in from england and considering how how video releases look and its unavailability and how you know the youtube link of it looks the print was stunning the print was mostly spotless it was phenomenal to see it it was a great crowd and it just one of those things that restores your faith seeing that movie the other night and um since we
2: talked
0: about that one the last time, I just wanted to mention that. Yes, I love the American Tech. I was in L.A. last summer for very briefly, just a few days. And actually, before I went, I knew I was going to go to see my friends and just, you know, uh, check out L.A. I actually bought movie tickets before I booked my hotel or the airfare. And I bought tickets to uh, Kieślowski's Red, the 4K Restoration, which was playing at the Arrow. And I wound up Mm -hmm. going with uh, Courtney Howard and we had a blast, you know, just walking around that little uh, area there with Brentwood and all the crazy stores and just seeing it on the screen and being with an appreciative crowd of, you know, a lot of people that were so young seeing it for the first time. and. I it makes me want to live in a rep city like LA I know New York has been a rep city forever but LA is getting better it's not just the new Beverly there's lots of places now and so that's really cool and exciting I'm gonna have to come back Peter we're gonna to have to hit some movies
1: You're, I would love that that would be great yeah I just saw a few Lubitsch films at the new Beverly the other night and it was the crowds come out yeah and it's and they they love the films They love the films. It's a a great thing to witness. It really is.
0: Yeah, that is. is so cool. Because so many movies coming out now, it seems like, who are these for? You know, like... Um, so many superhero movies. And I'm not like, you know, if you're a teenager, I'm sure they're awesome. But if you're somebody over the age of 30, or an adult who kind of misses this era of that we're going to be talking about this 90s era, when you had great Hollywood pictures, you had amazing foreign films, we still have amazing foreign films, and some indies that sneak through, but we had so many great indies in the 90s. And So it's really cool that you can see some of these on screen again. And like you said, restores your faith. Yes.
2: Yeah, it does. It really does.
0: And in deciding a topic for today, uh, Peter and I share a lot of similar tastes, and Peter has you know wonderful ideas, and so we probably have a ton for future episodes, which is very cool. But one of the ones he suggested early on that I was excited about was '93 and the thrillers of '93. So, what was it about this year and thrillers that appealed to you?
1: Well, I guess the year was already on my mind because. 30 years, a nice round number and all that stuff. And certainly for each of those years in the 80s and 90s when I was younger, the films that would come out, for example, in the summer, you know, was, were so vivid to me, the the progression of their releases and how they influenced my appreciation for films as things went on. And certainly 93, you know, probably... These days, people think of it as Jurassic Park and probably sleep, Sleepless in Seattle also. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a bad year uh, for, um, it wasn't a bad summer. There was a lot of junk. There's a, There was always a lot of junk. Oh, yeah. But oh, I, okay. the films I was thinking of, which I had already watched recently, were pretty good examples of what was being done then. Um yeah. One of them is very much a programmer. One of them was based on a blockbuster best-selling novel, and one of them was kind of an you know, the the term IP wasn't really in the mainstream just yet, but it was that. And it was an example that succeeded be, probably beyond all wildest expectations in terms of Oscar nominations and that sort of thing, and did certain things right that future examples didn't really follow, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so each of these three films say something about what that summer was film-wise to me. And yeah, they are thrillers. And, you know, Karina Longworth has certainly been talking about a lot about erotic thrillers lately. And I kind of wanted to avoid that, except for the first one, which sort yeah. of is erotic
2: thriller adjacent. But we'll get to that. We'll get
0: yes. to that. Um, absolutely I, and when we were talking about which ones to do you mentioned sliver and you said that kind of belongs to karina now because of her I, new <laughs> episode uh, and her new season on erotic thrillers and erotic 90s and i was so lucky to talk to karina recently um about this new really great season it so is. yeah it was it i is. was very excited to revisit these and when i was looking over the year it was amazing to see how many more thrillers like we were talking off air online about rising sun not a great picture but no. also there was you know falling down that year which is a dark mm-hmm. film and kind of really hard to watch nowadays because it's happening more and more uh mm-hmm. but also malice came out that year and there were yeah. just a ton of other uh thrillers but i, I really like the three shows chose because i think they they go very nicely together. We have two Chicago movies yeah, we have a couple yeah. with uh, filmmakers from the seventies. So the films mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about are guilty as sin, which opened on June four that year, the firm Sydney Pollock opened June 30th and then the fugitive, uh, which is directed by Andrew Davis, which opened on July 29th. So I should probably kick it off with uh, the one I actually didn't see until a few years ago. The rest I saw in the theater, but Guilty of Sin was a new watch for me. I want to say around 2019, I saw it for the first time. So talk to me about this one. Do you remember seeing it in the theater?
1: Yeah, um, 93 was sort of the year I, I'm i from New York and I eventually moved out to LA and 93 was the sort of real year that I made the transition. So all three of these films were seen in my early days in LA. So that that's part of what makes the recollections of seeing them so vivid to me. Um and Guilty as Sin, um, it's so strange because the movie the movie opened the week before Jurassic Park, which seems so crazy now. And yeah. mm-hmm. you know, everything about it just seems so strange to me now. It's uh it's written by Larry Cohen, it's directed by the great uh the great Sydney Lamette.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you wonder
1: what attracted somebody like Sydney Lamette to this film
2: um <laughs> he, you know
1: maybe he liked the idea of, it, of directing a potboiler maybe you know he was Sidney Lumet he wasn't just gonna sit around waiting for the next network to drop in his lap um no. I was very curious and I couldn't find much about it I found an interview with Larry Cohen where he basically just said you know, he was thrilled that uh, Sidney Lumet was going to direct it, but he felt that Sidney Lumet lost some of his enthusiasm when they didn't really get the actors they wanted. Um,
0: Do you know who but, they wanted uh, originally? Uh, he doesn't
1: really mention anyone. He said, we sent the script to Paul Newman. He liked it. He thought it was too old. Um, you know, I, I I genuinely enjoyed Don Johnson and Rebecca De and I Rebecca Mornay was kind of a big deal at the time, actually. Mm-hmm. Um
0: so, yeah, because Paul Newman, you can kind of see the relationship Sydney Lumet had with him. He had done The Verdict, mm-hmm. which I covered with right. Bilga Ibiri in an episode on legal thrillers. But yeah, Rebecca DeMornay is really great because mm-hmm. it was around the time of Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which I just covered. That was our season opener on Curtis Hansen with Ted Griffin. Yeah,
1: she she was a big deal. I am, um, you know, going back to the Karina thing for a second, this feels like erotic thriller adjacent at the very yes. least. I I pulled out my uh my DVD copy of it and um the critics quotes on the DVD it mentions Roger Ebert gave a thumbs up so it does mention that but below that it the quote from the, the Los Angeles Times is an erotic thriller. Wow that's the that's the rave review it gets from the LA Times on the DVD box. So I guess according to that it's officially an erotic thriller but it never really you see what I um, I hadn't actually seen the movie in a long time, and then I just picked up the movie the movie Cheap, and I remembered kind of enjoying it in a really junky kind of way. I mean, I should even ask, is this the junkiest film you've ever covered on this podcast?
0: Oh, not at all. No. Oh, really? It's okay. Fine. Yeah. It's kind, of yeah.
1: Tra- it's kind of trashy. It's,
0: it's trashy. It's kind of trashy, I've covered... and I mean that in a good way. Yeah I've covered what I like to call like with my friend Jed Ayers who chooses a lot of things that are uh, that he has a lot of enthusiasm for that other people do as trash-tastic and so this okay, is kind okay. of trash-tastic. I mean Roger Ebick gave it a three-star review. It is technically it's a Chicago movie but, you know it's set in Chicago so that might have helped a little bit. I would love to know what the quote, like the full quote was from the LA Times, right, right. and they called it an erotic thriller. Like, this isn't an erotic thriller, but <laughs> and then they took the phrase erotic thriller. yes yeah, So this was the era of erotic thrillers. I also love that it's kind of like a fatal attraction. And this was the time when the post-fatal sure. attraction, or as Karina said, the children of fatal attraction. Um, but you have Don Johnson in that role as a man Mm -hmm. who has murdered his wife. He's a womanizer who's a misogynist and uh, just loves using women and manipulating them. Rebecca DuVernay is his uh, lawyer. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that she's like, no, I'm not representing you. And then I am. Um, But I love that he you know, lets everyone think that they're having an affair and does all of this crazy Glenn Close-like stuff, but they don't actually have sex, which is um, right. really, really a nice little twist, I think, on erotic thrillers. Yeah.
1: What, what I kind of like about it is, I'm not saying I read this, it's just this is just how I'm reading it. It's like Larry Cohen decided he wanted to write a Jagged Edge ripoff.
2: Yes. And he sat down course. to do
1: it, and, and he sort of decided that... While he was writing it, anywhere he felt the story would normally zig, he was going to zag, Mm -hmm. and he was going to see how long he could keep those balls in the air. Yeah, and it kind of works for me in a really twisted way. And there are points; there are like several points where the scene is just Rebecca DeMornay and Don Johnson, and you can almost feel like Sidney Lumet, like you know, rubbing his hands together. Okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to work on this stuff.
0: Yeah, like palpable crackling tension.
1: Exactly, exactly. As far as being an erotic thriller goes, I think the most nudity we get is from Stephen Lang while he's eating Chinese food, Um, (laughs) which is I don't know what that's about. I don't know (laughs) what Stephen Lang Stephen Lang's look in this movie is like this big poofy hair and a mustache. There are a number of mustaches in this movie. I'm not really sure what's going on with all the mustaches. Um, But you know, the movie does not always hold together. It's about an hour 45. I feel like there's scenes that they could have lost and things like mm-hmm. that because there's shoe leather and it's when it's the two of them, especially that big scene at the end.
2: Oh my where goodness. Where he takes
1: the stand and it just, it feels like it's cracking. It feels like the actors are in the zone and they know what they're doing. And I'm sitting here watching it the other I am thinking, I'm enjoying this. This is junk, but you compare it to other such thrillers. One, I will mention, Oh, um, you know, this was, look, this is basically a program. It was released the week before Jurassic park. It was released by Hollywood pictures, the division of Disney who released like how many, how many Hollywood pictures were there? Like in 93 alone, 10, Disney just keep kept pumping these out.
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: something like a few weeks ago I watched Alan Pakula's Consenting Adults which was also from Hollywood and it's Mm -hmm. not good, it's one of Pakula's worst films
2: you
1: know, I've
0: never seen that
1: if you want to be a completist By all means, go go ahead. But it feels, you know, Karina mentioned it in her podcast, and it's very much a the neighbor from hell kind of thing. I won't get Mm -hmm. into the plot, but it feels so much part of that formula. And guilty as sin, I think what I like about it, in addition to being junky, is it's trying to screw with the formula. Yes, it's trying to figure. It's trying to get you to figure out where exactly is this going, because in terms of the jagged edge thing, and no, it never. They never. They never have sex. Mm -mm. It never even really becomes about them having sex.
2: No. Because he's
1: just trying to mess with her the entire time. When she takes him on, you know, somebody watching would think, oh, well, this is going down the jagged edge route where they're going to fall in love with or whatever. And it's almost before you realize it, Don Johnson is starting to turn the screws
0: and yes yeah. and i love how it's never even a question like he walks in and says he threw his wife out the window and then he does the no i didn't really do it but you know immediately that this guy did it so it's not even a question like there's not going to be a surprise twist at the end where it's like "Ooh, she had another boyfriend and he did it and don johnson's mm-hmm. innocent or something like that so you're right i think that's a really good point peter that they're messing with that formula i also on a personal level the thing that really kind of stuck out for me on my first watch is her name is jen or jennifer jenny they use all the (laughs) the versions of it and don johnson has one of those like a honey voice, a honey laced voice and it's, you know, dipped in poison or venom for this movie. And so I remember just getting kind of creeped out on it's both attractive and scary that he's saying my name at the same time. And so that was a very weird sensation. It was like, Ooh, he's saying my name, but he's terrifying. What is going on? So yes. Yeah.
1: I, I do want to mention one of the scenes between the two of them, this amazing scene where he makes a sandwich. Oh my and
0: goodness! Yes, with the
1: knife. It he, he he it's really the first time where she starts to see what's going on, yes. and he's wearing a bathrobe. It's the middle of the day, and he's in his kitchen, starting to make a sandwich with this giant knife, <laughs> sp- spl- splattering lots and lots of mayo on this sandwich while he just keeps talking and talking. It's like this
0: is yeah. this movie is clicking. Yeah. This is like, right. This knows what it wants to be. It knows it's fucked up, but it has you in the palm of the
1: hand. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And there are times where I was trying to think of it because, you know, Karina analyzed basic instinct in a very interesting way. And I was trying to almost view the movie through such a prism. And I'm not sure it's totally coherent enough to do that on just a level of, What is really the human behavior going on here? So I'm not sure it fully holds up, but I almost don't care. No, it is
2: enjoyable.
0: You know, what's so good about you choosing it too, is because when we talked about the heartbreak kid, we went into the whole egg salad sandwich. So again, we're talking about a sandwich. So when I have you on Peter, we're doing sandwich cinema. That's basically it.
1: That's, yes. I, I will continue to think about that. <laughs> I will continue to think about that. I mean, if you want to look for some teeth in our current world, I mean, maybe if, if such a movie were made today, it would be more about just the flat-out Me Too sexual harassment angle of it. Because it's almost like his motivation in hiring her and messing her messing with her and using her it's almost like he knows that everyone will believe the man
2: mm-hmm. even
1: if he's a killer yeah he's not really the smart professional woman and he knows this
0: yes and it's kind of interesting that this came out like before Disclosure. Another, you you talked about Jurassic Park. That's another Michael Crichton. So one sure. year before.
2: Yeah. Sure,
1: sure. I, you know, again, I don't know if the movie totally holds together enough. I mean, it's just got weird things where <laughs> I almost wish Larry Cohen had written it in such a way that you held with Rebecca DeMornay's point of view up until this crucial flashback that happens about an hour 15 into the movie, okay. where then we would break it. And the movie tells us something. I'm not I'm trying trying not to get into spoilers. There's a point where there's a flashback and we really break the point of view from her and we find mm-hmm. that something. I just almost wish we hadn't gone to that point of view up until then.
0: Things gotcha. like that. Okay. Things yeah, like that. a little bit tighter just from her perspective. Exactly. For sure. It's also yeah. one of those
1: weird things where you mentioned Chicago and the movie never really attempts to convince us that we're in yes it seems very
0: LA yeah
1: well no it's Toronto it's (laughs) Toronto and (laughs) it's funny because you know it does provide you know you think of Lumet filming all his movies in New York so at least this gives a Lumet it does feel like a Lumet film at times in terms of the people but it does give it a bit of a different flavor. But it's all these, these cold, modernistic buildings the movie is set in. Except for Jack Warden's office, which feels like it's right out of The Verdict. He's basically playing his character from The Verdict. He um,
0: is, yeah. yeah. It, he's like from a 40s movie, essentially. Exactly. Everybody else, yeah. And I love you brought up the buildings because they kind of seem um, like they represent Don Johnson. Just this like ice cold um, structure yeah. of when he walks in, he seems... Perfect, just to look at, but yeah, but a little bit like this building might topple, yes, or it might take me down Toron- with it, with me. It it
1: gives us this Toronto architecture. It gives us this Howard Shore score, and it almost made me wonder. Like, it almost feels like, what if David Cronenberg had just made decided to make a normal courtroom thriller? Ooh, it, it I almost, like that. Yeah. yeah, me too. Me too. At one point, one of the women who's supporting him gets introduced in a scene. And all I could think was she looks like one of, she, she could be one of the patients in dead ringers. And I looked her up and sure enough, that actress played one of the patients
2: in dead ringers. Really? So really? yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. She did. I think I know exactly who you're talking about. And now that you said that, I'm like, Oh, you could see her as, you know, in the adjuster, one of the women that <laughs> Elias Koteas goes and tries to comfort a little bit. Yeah. Right. right yeah. Right. That's, that's great. I love that. What if Cronenberg, what if, but I think for what it is, it's, you know, crazy entertaining and just, like we said, trash-tastic fun, it, for sure.
1: It's a nice reminder of these sort of programmers that would just come out normally when yeah. they worked. And this you know, this was a June release. I know. And it just, it, it, it's just such a different, it's just such a different.
2: Yeah. Movie. And this movie is like this.
1: It, like I said, it's junk, but I, I enjoyed Previsit.
0: It I, is I, I, extremely well-made junk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, again,
1: I don't know why Sidney Lumet, like, was attracted to something like this, except he, when he... um I, 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 I always think about, I want to write about some of these Sidney Lumet films that are the lesser known ones, Lumet B-sides. And yeah. when, he made the, when he made The Morning After with Jane Fonda, that was a thriller too, but he turned it into, a char- it's a character study more than a thriller. Mm-hmm. This one is very much a pop boiler and doesn't really try to disguise that.
0: Yeah, it is kind of interesting when you see some of these filmmakers attempting like you said the B-sides. You brought up The Morning After that reminded me of uh Pakula's uh Rollover with Jane Fonda which I think a lot of people forget about but I remember uh getting a kick out of it although that's junk and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but it's entertaining. Right, right. <laughs> and then Frankenheimer in the 90s was making wow. um you know all kinds of he made Ronin which is amazing but he also oh, made yeah. like Reindeer Games and some of these b-sides mm-hmm. that maybe weren't on the level of past movies but they're really entertaining yeah
1: when, when frankenheimer made Junk, it was almost like more expected from him it's like he kept veering between serious stuff and car chases with lumet i i watched his gloria remake recently and it's it's actually not good, but it does have a car chase in it and it does feel like a Lamette film at times and it's like, yeah. why did he make yeah. this? It's a Sydney Lamette car chase, what is this movie? And because you just think of Sydney Lamette as the verdict and Dog Day Afternoon and Network, which are such brilliant forever rewatchable Yes. And it kind and, of,
0: and, yeah.
1: And oh. this is almost him trying something below his station so to speak, but it's still fun. <laughs> It's still a lot of fun. And, And since we... I never really got to it just because I mentioned what Larry Cohen felt about the casting. I really like watching both of them in this film.
2: I do too. I think
1: Don Johnson, you know, he goes above and beyond at times but that seems so right for this guy and rebecca de mornay is for the most part so buttoned down when she's in public and she only opens herself up to stephen lang when they're naked eating chinese food and it's just (laughs) it's really interesting to watch um you know yeah i
2: I think
0: it was a really good choice. I'm glad we are tackling that one. And I think it leads in very well to our next film, The Firm, because you're dealing with Sidney Pollack, who, you know, made these wonderful entertainments and films in the 70s. I jokingly call him my dad because my parents, their first date was at Jeremiah Johnson and my mom wasn't sure if she wanted to go. And so I feel like had they gone to a horrible movie, they would have had nothing to talk about. So I'm like, Sidney Pollock is my dad. So I love The Firm. (laughs) It was the first rated R movie I ever saw in the theater, actually alone um, with my Mm -hmm. brother. Like I had read the John Grisham book. I was a huge fan. I read, I mean, the Pelican Brief came out this year. I covered that one with bilga on the legal thrillers uh podcast episode from i think it was season two but um you know this was the first one i remember my parents had seen it and they were like ah they can handle it so my brother and i went alone in the theater and it felt very grown up to see uh the firm at um i guess i would have been like 12 at the time yeah wow
1: okay okay i well you mentioned pollock right off the bat and he's basically why i wanted to talk about this one i mean the grisham Talking about John Grisham doesn't interest me very much. Talking about Sidney Pollock interests <laughs> yeah. me a lot. I mean, I just i I found it interesting because of the place he was in in his career at the time. He had just basically directed the biggest bomb of his career, Havana, which was kind of a disaster. His, oh yeah. Follow up really? to his one of the biggest hits of career of his career, which is Out of Africa, which won all the
2: Oscars. I
0: know. And oh, I love that film. Yeah.
1: There was a. I, even then, I had this vibe of, oh, okay, he's trying to find something very commercial and jump into that one immediately. Because it feels like The Firm, this is one of those movies that was supposed to be a hit. That was It was this giant blockbuster bestseller with mm-hmm. the biggest movie star in the world. And Sidney Pollack, who, you know, he for all I know, he would have wanted to make something a little classier than The Firm. And yeah. it, even at the time, um, I was even aware then that the movie was made very fast. They they even mentioned it in the press. That's why the movie is so long, because this was a it was it wasn't it wasn't normal at the time for a two and a half hour. For a, mo- for a summer movie to be two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. That was unusual at the time. There was, I remember even reading a quote somewhere from Sydney Pollack saying, you know the old saying, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Well, I would have
2: written <laughs> it in a
1: <laughs> I think the movie wrapped in March for its June release.
2: Wow. And
1: It's watching it now, it's almost like the pacing of the movie, you know, equates with how fast they were making it because right from the beginning the movie doesn't stop Mm -hmm. it just keeps going Mm -hmm. going 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 and it it's it surprisingly works a lot of the time even while I'm not always sure about the plot points because in all honesty reading up I I read the book a million years ago yeah yeah. Reading up on the, Wikip- the Wikipedia page, talking about differences from the novel, I, my eyes start to glaze over. But I am aware while watching it that it's like the movie is about a guy, a lawyer who joins a firm that is secretly like in cahoots with the mob or run by the mob or whatever yeah, it
2: yeah. is. But
1: the movie feels the need to bring in all this other stuff about overbilling and all these things, which are basically you know, in the service of trying to find its way to have this be palatable to people. So Tom Cruise will always be likable. And Mm -hmm. it will, uh, you know, aim towards that end, that happy end. And along with that, it feels like, you know, my feeling about Sidney Pollock movies is that he's always, unless it's something like Jeremiah Johnson, he's always the most interested in the relationship between the man and the woman.
0: Oh, for sure. In Three
1: Days of Condor, which I love, Mm -hmm. he's interested in Redford and Dunaway more than the point. You know, and there are some movies of his where that, you know, that maybe becomes a problem. Things like Random Hearts or whatever. I was just going to say
0: that, that one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And
1: in The Firm, he does the right thing where the love story between Tom Cruise and his wife, played by Jeannie Triplehorn, doesn't overwhelm anything but it's almost like he turns that into both the heart of the movie and where the movie can return to in the middle of all this plot stuff so it's like this is what we need to keep carrying that yeah and there's all these plot mach- machinations the, the movie is written by um uh the three writers David Rabe, uh Robert town and uh is it Rayful Rayful it was like Sidney Pollack's guy. Yes. If you look up his filmography, there was, um, there's a line that recurs in Sidney Pollack movies. Um, uh, You think not getting caught in a lie is the same thing as telling the truth. Redford says it in Condor, mm-hmm. Stephen Hill mm-hmm. says it in The Slender Thread, and Sean Penn says it in The Interpreter. And it's not said in The Firm, but it feels like it could be said in The Firm.
0: It's a theme he Um, kind of goes for. I'm glad you brought up the pacing and how um, he establishes the man and the woman. One thing I did a few years ago, I created this like really analytical thread on Twitter when I was watching the firm and kind of breaking down what I loved about the beginning. And uh, it actually took off. And what was interesting is that's how I met um, Janet Maslin over the internet because she had just, she either had just done a thing with uh, John Grisham or was going to the next night at the Jacob Burns film center. I had no idea. And so she used my thread um, and kind of helped it go mini viral. But my favorite thing about the beginning is it takes eight and a half minutes to introduce the Tom Cruise character to the firm. And through those eight and a half minutes, rather than like exposition or a a voiceover or somebody saying, hey, you're almost done with law school, what are you gonna do next? That kind of thing, we see him like how he spends the day he works in the bar he is playing basketball with the judges all of these like little pieces of who this man is are presented to us and it takes its time and I did track it it was like eight and a half minutes and then his first line one of them when he walks in and meets the lawyers is talking about the last time he was tongue-tied was with his wife and mm-hmm. you know um like she is the most important thing to him and that is also the most important or the thing that interests sydney Pollock the most and so yeah i think it is really cool and even something as ridiculous as him like walking down the uh, street and doing those flips for no reason or you that, think there's I no still, reason i
1: i don't know what to say about that i
0: yeah there's this time, like, acrobatic what? thing it comes back I, later though which i love
1: like is it when he jumps out of the window onto the... the yeah, yeah. The, the truck? We, okay.
0: Yeah, so we need okay. to know that he, he has these cat-like reflexes. So <laughs> it seems totally <laughs> ridiculous. Like, just yes. Tom Cruise <clears throat> decided to do this. And people are like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess it's on film. Let's throw it in the movie. But it comes mm-hmm. back later. And so I do love that. You know, the thing that also interests me is just how many amazing character actors are in this movie. You have Ed mm-hmm. Harris, you have David Strathairn, Holly Hunter, Gary Busey, all these people, uh Margot Martindale is that, that, uh, you know, in it, and just all of these like actors. Uh Gene Hackman, I think, kind of steals the film away from Cruz. No, Hackman's times. great.
1: It, it sort it of very cheating. quickly became part of the Grisham thing, like this update of disaster movies to have everyone yeah. in the movie somebody, uh, somebody recognizable. And it's um it t- it, t- it totally works here. I mean, everyone is engaging. Hackman is fantastic. I think that everyone is also given a lot of really good, colorful dialogue.
2: Yes, that sort of mm-hmm.
1: that sort of helps us to glide over some of the 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 plot nonsense. There's a lot of dialogue yeah. that I just like him cheating genuinely... for
0: no reason. That never makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know.
1: It's it's
0: a weird plot movie because
1: it occurs to me that when they go down to the Cayman Islands. Um, Oh, it gets and strange. Then, yeah. Well, it gets strange, and I, you, you know what? I even like—is uh, it Karina Lombard who was uh, the? Um, oh yeah, she's excellent. The, yeah,
2: she, the, she's the, she's the honey good. trap. I,
1: yeah, her enigmatic speech with somehow draws Tom Cruise to her, like they knew what to have her say, which is absurd. Yes. But it's fascinating dialogue anyway. But the plot stuff, it's like they come back from the Caymans. Tom Cruise rents a car. He drives out to the prison to visit his brother. He comes back. He um, he hires a Gary Busey while, while Gene Hackman and Jeannie Triplehorn are talking. And it's like it's all in the same day. And it's just like, what is the time frame of this movie? Is it two weeks? I sometimes wonder. A lot of stuff happens in the movie over the course of like a day. It's just one of yeah. those crazy mm-hmm. script construction things mm-hmm. that you just have to
0: accept. like. don't think about it too long or it all falls apart essentially like a house of cards but it's so entertaining I mean you yes. also have like amazing production specs you have John Seal doing the cinematography Dave Grusin on the score what do you think of the I, score
1: I think the score is fantastic I know I a lot know, of people have always it. complained about the score it's a lot of fun even when um, even when it switches to overt suspense music during the chase near the end mm-hmm. Um, it's very much in the ilk of the John Williams conspiracy music from JFK. That was like an early nineties thing. Every thriller was lifting from JFK,
2: and, <laughs>
1: but it turns it into something totally right for this movie with the piano and it's fun and it's cool. And it's you know, music that we don't get. I, I like, I like Grusin. even though some of gruesome is very much locked back in that seventies feel.
0: It is. It's very Yeah. <laughs> it was like a a strange love affair for me i remember hating the score when i was a kid and it took Mm -hmm. years i was like you know it grated on my nerves i was like what's up with the the scott joplin the piano and then you get (laughs) older and then all of a sudden it's like it's memphis this is jazz this totally Mm -hmm. works and now i love the score like i could listen to that score all the time it's perfect for this movie yeah
1: yeah. And we should, I just, I just want to mention while we can uh, Wilford Brimley in there, just because um, he gets Amazing. like one of, the greatest, one of the greatest speeches in the movie. Um,
0: I know that's, that's kind of, yes. The, the thing I love about it too, is I made this joke on Twitter, but you know, it's good. I saw it at age 12 because it taught me a really important lesson about relationships. There's just, you should never <laughs> cheat because it's wrong and it's horrible, but if you do, mr quaker oh it's wilford brimley will totally blackmail your ass yeah the
1: phrase oral and whatnot which uh, i don't know which writer is responsible for that but that's great
0: yes (laughs) f-bombs like you're like wilford brimley i mean yeah Mm -hmm. it's (laughs) you know the pacing
1: of the movie is so incessant at times and there are times when i feel like i can sense the rush nature of the production because it feels like we're being slammed into a scene midway through or slammed out of it before it's really done, and it's not always elegant. No, um, some things like Gene Hackman. It, it feels like Gene Hackman is robbed of kind of a decent final moment because of all that, because the movie is always just rushing to the next thing, and yet it somehow works. The basic thread of the narrative is always compelling and it just keeps us moving forward.
2: And I don't know if
1: it's not the best Grisham movie of the batch, Mm -hmm. but it's really good Chinese food.
0: It is, You know, and I love that all of these filmmakers from the seventies tackled their, their Grisham. They went through a little bit. I mean, you have, you know, you have this one, you have Pakula who did Pelican Mm -hmm. brief. Coppola's Rainmaker, I think is really great. Well, and also that's you a fantastic have, movie. That's yeah. Fantastic you have movie. Altman doing Gingerbread man, which is not a fantastic movie, but it's an interesting movie. It is and, an interesting uh, movie. It, yeah. It's
1: part of the thing of back in the nineties, we had these seventies guys still doing yeah. work if they were allowed. And, Part of the time was them moving into these commercial thrillers to keep working, but you know it was these guys and their cinematographers along the lines of Seal and Vilmos Zsigmond and whoever else just bringing this craft to, you know, fairly goofy material at times.
0: Yeah, but these are these
1: are good movies. Um,
2: everybody's
0: hitting homers you have Holly Hunter who is amazing and she received an Oscar nomination Best Supporting Actress she won that year for Best Actress for Piano I love she Mm -hmm. lost uh, her supporting award to her co-star in the piano Anna Paquin but you know, it's so good because you have these actors doing incredible work and um, our next film, we have Tommy Lee Jones who also won the Oscar. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, you have people that are nominated for these movies and. Yeah. It's
1: and and got a nomination. For his, for his yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, it's, you know, I keep, keep going back. You, there's so much that's a mess about the movie and so much of it. That's such a pleasure. Even the big, the final scene, the recompense, Wait, we ain't spoilers. I was gonna say the reconciliation. Oh, you're at the end, fine. But who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Between Tom Cruise and Jeannie Triple Horn, their dialogue almost feels like Town or Rayfield or whoever sort of pulled the dialogue from their file of here's good dialogue for when the man yeah. and the woman make up. Because it's not day necess- dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily connected to the movie we just watched, but it's dialogue that's a pleasure to hear. Yes. It's yeah. really well executed. It's well constructed. It holds together.
2: It does. And
1: it. this was a big July 4th movie in 1993, even while the dinosaurs were down the hall at the multiplex. This yeah. movie was a blockbuster. Yeah.
0: It was. I saw both of these at the same theater, probably within oh, okay. the same couple weeks. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it was a good summer. It was a good it summer even really though we of the Burnie's 2 was coming in a few weeks. It was
0: so um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, they can't all be winners, but our next no. one uh, definitely is and well, you know, it's wonderful. It's one of the most endlessly rewatchable thrillers. I think it just mm-hmm. everything clicks and mm-hmm. uh we're talking about the Fugitive. With, um, you know, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones in uh, bringing the TV show to life, director Andrew Davis. So tell me your history with this movie.
1: Um, again, we're talking like very shortly after i would made my way out here to L.A., which mm-hmm. is a whole story in itself that I won't go into. But the first time I saw The Fugitive was at a test screening in early June of that year. Oh, wow. Um, Part of what amazes me about this is much like the firm, this was a very fast production. The Fugitive started shooting in February. And somehow I was seeing a test screening in June.
2: Wow. I still
1: don't know how that's possible. Um, If you look at the credits, there are six editors credited and a lot of assistant editors. Mm -hmm. So they clearly knew what they were doing and were well-organized to get this done.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: And the production was such um, like they were writing it on the day, changing dialogue. Uh, I read Mm -hmm. some backstories where they're like, you know, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Jane Lynch, you know, people who are whoever was in the scene that day should have also been kind of like co-writers on this film because they were sort of working on it as they were going. And so I guess you needed those editors to help shape it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it just works.
1: It took everything about it worse. The movie was more or less totally to get in my memory. Remember it's a long time ago. Now in my memory, the movie was basically there. It was yeah. still a temp score. And there were a couple of things. They probably cut some shoe leather. There was confusion in the pe- people talking afterwards because um, the woman who picks up Richard Kimball in her car, people were okay. confused by that mm-hmm. scene because it seemed to come be a follow up to an earlier scene that we hadn't seen. I think she was meant to be a waitress in a truck stop diner. Who had met him there, oh, okay. and that's why she picked him up. And there was dialogue that we saw referencing that, and people were just confused.
2: Gotcha. So mm-hmm.
1: all they all they have with her now is that she picks him up, which is still kind of strange. But you you glide by that. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie was basically done. The movie was there, and you know it was nice to have this secret. I had I remember at the time of uh, for a couple of months, I had the secret of how good this movie really was. I mean it's one of those crazy things where they were clearly rushing to make it in theaters for August but it, they were not rushing it to get Oscar nominations. Mm-mm. And it's Mm-mm. it happened because everything about the movie works practically. The yeah. movie yeah. <clears throat> watching I watched it again last night. I've seen it a couple of times already and I'm just reminded of how much the movie flows. It does. The movie always it's almost like it keeps going between sort of this, you know, clarity and image. It's like it will keep reminding you of what's going on. After the St. Patrick's Day sequence, there's a press conference where we have reporters basically reiterating the plot to us of mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Richard Kimball escaped and now he's at large. And But then it'll cut to Harrison Ford somewhere in the city by himself. And it'll just like hold on him for a moment. To give it just this poetry. Because it's a very visual performance Harrison Ford has to play. He doesn't get a speech about how much he loved his wife.
0: We'll, no, we'll, no, we uh, see yeah. it in pictures. And we, 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 we see, see the it on his face. And
1: yep. I find some of that footage interesting because it of uh, we, it's like they spent a, a day just filming Selah Ward in the apartment. Yes, Selah Ward mm-hmm. plays his wife who gets mm-hmm. killed and it's like they just spent a day filming her doing stuff and in, in mm. the in the movies. like what is he doing what is all this stuff supposed to be but it it works perfectly yeah when it's all together, yeah. together keeping yeah. her in his head okay. keeping her in our head as we're watching this and i don't know if you have any history with the tv show at all i mean we're of a, a generation that uh I after. saw some <laughs>
0: reruns. Uh, I remember I was in like this postmodern pop culture, uh, kind of as a book and a media club that was at Barnes and Noble when I first moved to uh, the Phoenix area. It was very strange. And one night we did um, The Fugitive and we watched like some clips from the old show. So it was interesting to see how they were playing on the humanity and the pathos and how that also just translates exactly like you were saying. But yeah, what mm-hmm. were you going to say with the television show?
1: Well, you've clearly seen more of the television show than I have, because I knew it by reputation. I even remember at the time, um, it's a great trailer, the, te- the original teaser for this movie. It's a great teaser, mm-hmm. where we have Tommy Lee Jones doing the whole hard target search thing. Oh, and I gosh. actually have a memory of, at the time, seeing the trailer in a theater, people not knowing what the movie was. And at the very end, Tommy Lee Jones says, your future's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Yes. And there were people older than me in the audience who you could tell that there was this murmur behind me of like, oh, that's an old TV show. Uh, uh." And so I knew of it because of that. But my... Without ever having seen it, I have this idea of the TV show as being this sort of fatalistic noirish kind of thing. It was kind of. And every week yeah. he, he goes into some town and helps somebody, and then he moves on. That's like the Incredible Hulk later. That's what my <laughs> idea. And you you can't really have it. He's running forever in a movie. If they wanted to make oh. a different movie, they could have done. It. But we'll get to that. How the movie actually ends. Um, so there. Ha- there still are touches of it just shot to Paris and Ford by himself entering that tunnel. Um, It's like this signifies he's entering this sort of underground world to stay alive. And um, even the um, the sequence with Julianne Moore as, as this doctor. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like a mini TV episode for about five minutes.
0: I know it it has nothing to do with the central plot, but it, it connects right. us with who this man is and why we should yep. care about him. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, exactly. I love it. He saves a child. If, if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie in a while, he's in the hospital and he is a doctor and he sees a kid not getting the treatment that he desperately needs. And, you know, he goes ahead and looks at the chart and the film and takes care of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how fresh the movie felt, at the time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because um, for some reason, even at the time, not knowing who she was, uh, it was one of her first films, Jane Lynch kind of pop, popped for me, like she made an impression. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she's very good in her small part. And like the very first thing she says on screen is um, she's being interviewed by like the Marshalls or whatever. And she says, I just first want to state for the record that I believe Richard Kimball to be innocent. Yes. And mm-hmm. I couldn't... Pl- I couldn't really put it into words at the time, but I think what struck me was that um, it wasn't like somebody in a TV show saying, I would never believe that so-and-so could do such a thing. Mm -hmm. It was like she was making this a political statement. Yes. And that, to me, felt like it was making this movie based on an old TV show as part of our recognizable world. And these days, that's almost like an old hat. Everything does that. But then that felt new. Then that felt different. Um, That almost weirdly, even though it's not part of an action scene, like Tommy Lee Jones saying, I don't care. That almost spoke to me about what the movie was trying to do as much as anything.
0: Yeah, he's a man on a job. That is I, I use that all the time. I love that scene. I can it lives in my head rent-free as the kids say, but I went mini-viral uh for talking about how much I love Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. And I said oh, something I love about it is he just shows up. His whole job is to try to put an innocent man back in jail. But we dig him anyway, because he is Tommy Lee Jones delivering his lines and rapid fire rhymes. He is the coolest cat in every single scene he's in. And he is kind of the the person you're like, you're rooting for him. At the same time, you're like, get away, but go get him, Tommy Lee Jones, but get away. And I love, um, you know, that he had his own spinoff with uh, U.S. Marshals, which I actually get a kick out of. I enjoy okay. U.S. Marshals. Okay. It's, okay. it's not a masterpiece, but it is a lot of fun as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, Joe Pantoliano in this, who, no, he's who I he's love fantastic. from Midnight Run. And so, uh, yeah. Midnight so Run great. again, yeah. yeah.
1: And Andrew Davis had made a couple, he's from Chicago, and he'd made a couple of other Chicago movies before this, like The Package with Gene Hackman and oh, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but um, that's... Years ago, yeah. Okay, it's it's a pretty good movie. I saw it during COVID, and um, um, it's like, it's... Kind of like set in the same Chicago this is basically. Cool. And it's almost like he loved this city and the fugitive is he just basically turns the fugitive into the perfect version of that movie of showing off his city. And when um he sort of tried to do another fugitive type movie, Chain Reaction a couple of years later, it was not Oh with same. Keanu Reeves with and Keanu Reeves, Morgan yeah, Freeman. Keanu, not a good yeah,
0: film. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: not a good film. But this one is I don't know Chicago but everything about the city like feels so tangible.
0: I lived in Chicago for a little bit when I was a kid but you know I have a lot of affection for the Midwest because I grew up mostly in the Minneapolis area. But what I I loved when I was reading about it is it was Harrison Ford who really pushed to get a lot of it shot in Chicago. I mean, they shot other places, but to go there, he's like, you know, I'm from uh, Wisconsin or I went to school in there. And so they they weren't afraid of the cold weather and they wanted to go do it. And what was cool is reading that the St. Patrick's Day parade, they also shot Blink in the same parade. So the film crews were like running into each other. And so they had to work it out at the film office, and sometimes the camera people would bump into each other because they were filming two different thrillers in the same St. Patty's Day parade. But, but yeah, it, it's really cool to see, um, Chicago and also Harrison Ford really wanted to play, um, a man. This is in a, a vanity kind of way that he got to grow a beard because he was getting tired mm-hmm. of always looking like himself and how studio heads were, you know, you need to look a certain way. And he's like, I wanted to play a guy with a beard, a little bit um, scrappier looking and a little more like a real man. And so he was very excited to do that. Yeah.
1: It, it, it's a very confident movie star performance it by is. him. You I, need I it. really, yeah, I really enjoy watching him in this movie. He is like literally one moment of levity and the rest of it is him. Running, basically, mm-hmm. and for the most part, he, he's he, look. We all there's n- there's very little new to say about Harrison Ford at this point, but I love watching him in this movie. And then when he does get to talk near the end, then you know they they falsified the reports so RUD90 <laughs> could give you probation. I I just, I love that stuff. I just love, because yes. and Harrison Ford, you know, pointing at pointing, and he he knows what he's doing
0: you know, you know I mean, this is part of the Harrison Ford cinematic universe of playing a doctor <laughs> yes. where his wife either dies or goes missing, because I also love Polanski's Frantic. I think people should talk about that one more. Oh, and, I'm a
1: big, big Frantic fan. Oh, no, my no, God, no, no, I no, love no. it. Yes. Yeah. Frantic was weirdly like a big deal to me when I was a teenager. Like, for some reason, I just Same. loved that movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, um, it's just... It plays great now. It's such a funny movie. It's such a suspenseful
0: movie. He's phenomenal in that film. Oh, my gosh. One of his best performances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe The Fugitive is more of the pop commercial version of that. Yes. He's still great in it. I know. know,
0: That'd be a really good double, you guys, is what we're saying. Sure, sure.
1: (laughs) No, we'll have to talk about Frantic some other time. I know.
0: (laughs) thrillers of 87 or whatever that was yes
1: (laughs) it's my feeling that that 88 harrison ford is kind of peak harrison ford i know some people would say yeah
0: the working girl era
1: and Mm then i I just frantic the double bill of frantic and working girl it's like that's what i love about harrison ford as actor and star yes my favorite
0: Um, too the most interesting part of harrison ford yeah,
1: yeah yeah i mean that's off the the fugitive line but
0: It's it's Harrison,
1: Harrison. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's you know. So, and the movie, you know, it's sort of like there. There are times when I've seen the movie, and it's like I've sort of mentally focused on what his sort of journey is through this sort of trying to stay below society where anyone will pay attention to him, because you know, it's almost like this message of the movie is don't trust rich doctors and Chicago cops. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, trust the people below all them. Mm-hmm. Julianne Moore mm-hmm. is below all of them. He can ultimately, tra- if, he, if he had to interact with Julianne Moore a little bit more, she would probably trust him. He would probably yep. be able to trust mm-hmm. her. Um, but you know all these you know i i kind of wish that the chicago cops got more of a comeuppance at the end but what do you do
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) all they have to do is deal with the press in the i i I just wish there was a little bit more of that but uh
0: i do do? love the scene when tommy lee jones first interacts with the local uh sheriff's department and you know because Mm -hmm. of the transport and oh he's dead and then what do we have here and you know leg irons with no legs in him and uh and then he just takes over right there so it's kind of showing um that it's it can be corrupt and you know i'm just gonna take over your investigation and it's amazing yeah
1: right from the beginning you trust him you believe him you can tell he's good at good at his job Uh and it's one of those things where the movie does not make him correctly does not make him a bad guy so you are not sure yeah where the movie is going to go because of that because exactly. certainly Tommy Lee jones had played bad guys already
0: oh my goodness so he, yeah at, you know Do you ever blown away oh my god that that was
1: part of like the post yeah well yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 tommy lee jones he um
2: he spent under a lot Seeds. of time running
1: well sure sure no under yeah, siege yeah. was like yeah. the year before this but oh, yeah okay yeah andrew yeah. davis it's, yeah it, this was during the time where Tommy Lee Jones became the actor and movie star he was supposed to be. It was like when he was a little bit younger, it wasn't quite the right fit. It's like exactly. he grew into his face. He grew into his screen persona, where yeah. by the time you get to something like Double Jeopardy, which is not a great movie, but it's okay. It's like it's he's entertaining, fully,
0: it's serviceable. It's entertaining. Yeah.
1: He's By that point, he, and Men in Black and all that, he's fully in command of mm-hmm. who he is in front of the camera. Yep. And The Fugitive is almost like, I'm not saying it's... There's something about it where his performance in The Fugitive, where everything kind of crystallizes. Mm -hmm. And he just plays off Joey Pants and Daniel Robeck and the other people he works with. They just play off each other so, so well.
2: Amazingly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And and it's a really good James Newton Howard score, too. I think that may have been nominated for an Oscar also. But it's just a really good 90s action score. Excellent score. (laughs) A lot of percussion. And it just helps drive the movie forward. I mean, I keep on coming back to how phenomenally well edited this movie is in whatever rush they were doing yeah. with all those editors they had. It just, it comes together so, so well.
0: And it's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, wasn't it shot by Michael Chapman, right? I believe so, yeah. Yes. A lot of nights, yeah. a lot of cold. hmm Yeah. Yeah. You need somebody with that skill to be able to capture because a lot of it is very dark. Yeah, a lot of gray. Mm-hmm and very Mm -hmm. chicago yes
1: Uh, very chicago very chicago and yeah yeah yeah. uh,
0: wonderful film it's Uh, it's it's a damn good movie it is i I know i put it on yesterday i just watched it a few months ago and i put it on kind of as background to while i was doing laundry and other stuff and we had a repair guy here for like five hours and so i kind of put it on and then within like a half hour I stopped doing everything else and was just focused on the film because it just sucks you right in.
1: Yeah. And it probably has one of the greatest uh trace the phone call scenes.
0: Ooh, ever. yes.
1: Because yeah. and I love the, the whole way... thing
0: with the L. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, with the L, yes. But when Harrison Ford gets Tommy Lee Jones on the phone oh. to talk to him. Uh-huh. And they're like, the the points of the suspense is we even cut to Joey Pants, drag this out, keep talking. (laughs) And then Harrison Ford doesn't hang up. He just puts the phone down and totally pulls out the rug from that. And it's just such a great moment. It's such an unexpected moment. And so much of the movie is it's like it's so like pure. He's a man on the run. He's being chased. (laughs) You know, it's based on an old TV show anyway, so we all know what the plot is.
2: Mm-hmm. And yet the movie
1: throughout does these things, big and small, that are both so well executed and at times so unexpected that it just, it's this, I i overuse the phrase at times, but it's almost like this sort of Casablanca-like example of everything coming together because you have the right people uh, we should mention who, who I we should mention the writers, David Toey and Jeb Stewart, I believe.
2: yes, just to mention yes. them
1: just because they they put all this construction together.
2: Mm-hmm. This is
1: mm-hmm. one of those things where everybody was in the zone of making this the best possible version of this movie that they could.
0: That yeah, could be, and a recurring theme with all of these films we're talking about is exactly what you just said, Peter. Like everything you know, it works, maybe they're not um, inventing or reinventing the wheel here. But there's so much that's unexpected in each of these films, like the pacing in the firm, or the little things that happen with Don Johnson, guilty as sin, and just the way that they're able to insert these uh, into these movies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we should, it occurs to me that it's, there, I don't know if there's another example of a movie based on an old TV show where it basically just wraps up the concept of the TV show by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. The Adams Family still lived together. You can have another Adams Family movie. You can still have another Star Trek movie with the crew of the Enterprise. But yeah. he's no longer a yeah. fugitive at the end of it. They have an ending.
0: Yes, At the end do. of the
1: Lost in Space movie, they were still lost in space. To make the
0: secret. <laughs> yeah, or you the Brady Bunch movie. You could keep spinning those off kind sure, of thing. Sure, for exactly. sure.
1: But this ends it. Mm -hmm. And it would not be, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about how great this movie is if it was just like, set it up for the sequel at the end.
2: Yeah. And you
1: probably wouldn't have been able to do that even a few years later. I don't know how they got away with it then, but it was the best, it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, because- even in U.S. Marshals, we're not really reflecting at all on what happened mm-hmm. here. It's like just pulling these characters, the U.S. Marshals, out and putting them in a new situation. Exactly.
1: I remember seeing U.S. Marshals and kind of thinking at one point, "Can not we just hear about how Richard Kimball is doing? I
0: just, know. just give us
1: an update. <laughs> yeah. Give us a newspaper headline. Something.
0: Yeah. But, you know, oh, maybe well. maybe they're golf buddies by then. We yeah. don't know. They could be. Yeah.
1: They could be. They could be. We don't know what happens after the movie. Maybe they hung out. We don't. No,
0: yeah I, I know uh well this was so much fun to go into all of these films is there anything else you want to add about these movies or recommend uh other 93 thrillers or just films that you think people should see i kept, it I kept
1: thinking you know it was almost like the expected third movie i could have brought up instead of guilty of sin was in the line of fire um, yeah. but I was just more interested in guilty as sin, to be honest. I like in the line of fire. I just I did didn't. See uh, it. Yeah. 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 And that also has an Oscar nomination. So it would have been mm-hmm. perfect. That's me being imperfect. Um,
0: That's okay. But... We can do a part two. I mean, there's a lot there. <laughs> I was also thinking about, like I said, Malice, which I haven't seen in years. Malice is good. Yeah. Malice is but good. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah.
1: And um, I do have a twisted fondness for sliver, even though I don't think oh, it's yeah. very good. I think Karina the ending, likes it a lot more than yes. me, but well the ending and you know yeah. again it's a, it's it was a time when that was like the, that came out in may of 93 the week before memorial day it was mm-hmm. a giant erotic thriller being released the week before memorial day by a major studio it's like the world was so different then our movie world was so different there was more variety of films.
0: yeah you couldn't turn on mtv without hearing the ub40 song and seeing oh, yeah, that video yeah. I mean, and yeah, oh my yeah. goodness yeah
1: I just
0: there was an appetite there, for these. Yep.
1: I know. I know. I miss that. I really do. I mean, I don't want to be the guy who just sits around talking about the old
2: days. That's the thing.
0: Yeah,
1: I know. There was it's it just the movie culture. There was something so much healthier about it. It's like you need you know, Schindler's List came out later in the year and that was the big Oscar player and you mm-hmm. need Schindler's List and you need Jurassic Park and you need Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle. You need yeah. these movies like yeah. in the you know, in the ecosphere to like keep our movie like, going, so to speak. But you also need the fugitive. You also need, um. you also need the firm. You also even need guilty of sin because without programmers like that, I don't know what to say. You just, you don't need rising sun because that's, what is the deal with rising sun? Why
2: is that so bad?
1: <laughs> Why is that so bad?
0: It's... I never liked it then. But I mean, I love the the cast. But but yeah, it was no, not I... great. Although, you know, what's funny listening to you talk. I was thinking about my good friend, Jordan Harper, who just said, because he's starting to go more to the rep screenings in L.A., said, you know, the more the, the more years go by and what's happening with film, he has a theory that every movie made before 2000 is just getting retroactively better every single year. And yeah. uh, maybe not Rising Sun, but we're saying Guilty as Sin deserves another look. Yes. Yeah.
1: There's um, th- it's one of those things that never makes any sense, but when I watch certain like movies from, say, the late 90s, mm-hmm. it sort of clicks something in my brain of almost like there's something to the the camera work, the film stock, the anamorphic flavor to it that it's almost like, These, this is how we were supposed to look. I just watched Screen 2 the other day. And yeah. it's like, there's something to that that's like it registers something in my brain that just
0: that was shot actually uh, at a college i spent a little time at agnes oh wow okay indicator georgia atlanta and uh one of the most beautiful college campuses and uh yeah but just the glossiness i mean i'm glad you brought that up because i just watched the new scream six the other night Mm -hmm. on paramount plus and you mm-hmm. know, that's doesn't look like a movie compared to how these movies no, used to look. I, yeah.
1: You know, it's, it's partly a digital thing, I guess. It's partly yeah. just uh, how things look anyway. I don't want to, mm-hmm. I never want to just be an anti-digital guy, but it does. Oh, feel not like at
0: some, all. There's been some great stuff on digital. Yeah. But... Yeah.
1: But it's, you know, I, I actually didn't, I didn't totally mind Scream 6, but it feels like I'm not really part of that audience anymore, which is fine.
2: Yeah. Which
1: is fine. Mm-hmm. Um... It, it, something it it feels like there's a flavor that's missing there's a style that's missing too yes it. and mm-hmm. um scream 2 isn't the greatest movie ever but I did like it and just looking at it
2: yes register exactly. something to
1: me. yeah and I miss that I miss that and there's a little bit of that in these movies from 93 as well there just is there just is and we've two um Two directors here who, you know, were sort of in the latter part of the career, their career, but still doing good work. Lumet did have some really good, solid work coming. Mm-hmm. This is this isn't the last good Pollock movie, but he had a couple of. I was never much for Sabrina. I was never much for Random Hearts. The Interpreter. Oh, I love solid, right? Sabrina. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're Forgive
0: fine. Me. Some Forgive people hate me. it. No, you're fine. Yeah. Um, But Andrew Davis made one that actually covered with Jed, Um, you know, a perfect murder a few years later, I think was damn good, actually. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. And he just sort of seemed to, I've looked it up on Wikipedia. He lives in Santa Barbara or something. Maybe he lives off the fugitive money. I don't know. uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure what happened in his career, but yes, exactly.
1: Something like the fugitive show, you know, it's probably his best film. So it shows the, you know how good he could be. It really does. We had these, Absolutely. we had these, cra- we had these craftsmen back then, and I miss some of these guys. I really do. I really yeah. do. I'm glad I got to be around for some of. Them.
0: Me too. And I'm glad that I got to discuss all of these with you and kind of relive the excitement of going to the movie theater in 93, exactly, and seeing some of these. So, Peter, I want to thank you so much for doing this. You're going to have to come back when you come up with another idea or else we'll just have a whole hour on Frantic, essentially.
1: Okay, that sounds good to me. I would (laughs) love to. I would love to do that, Joan. Thank you so much.
0: Of course. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research